0: As I said in episode two, I was born a transgender woman and came into this world in 1944. That was a time when the assumed negative beliefs about transgender people were much stronger and more deeply entrenched in the larger culture than today. I had to hide my feelings and pretend to just be what everyone thought was a so-called normal boy and man. I did it partly to escape discrimination and partly because I believed what the world around me said that there must be something wrong with me. I survived but lived with depression that would periodically become debilitating. I finally came out to myself in 2005 and publicly in 2008. By 2010, I was taking hormone replacement therapy And in March 2013, I had gender-confirming surgery. I've lived happily after that. And as I told my girlfriends, I finally felt normal for the first time in my life. There are many other transgender people born over decades who were finally able to come out. If someone wants to understand us, they need to hear our stories and to accept that we are a fact in the world. At one point, DeWall says that the most important statement in science isn't Eureka, as in the understandably joyous feeling that comes from solving a problem, but, hmm, that's interesting, which happens when you run into a phenomenon in the world that you don't yet understand. That is what leads to research and new learning. Being scientific means starting from facts in the world studying then, and then coming up with theories that seem to fit the facts. One of the challenges that transgender people live with is that the science has not caught up with the fact of our existence. Still, we are here, we are not going away, and there are more of us that are born every year. The world of sex and gender is a wondrous thing. We know some things about these phenomena, but in the overall scheme of things, we are only beginning to develop our scientific knowledge, especially when it comes to gender. Getting fixated on what we think we know and not seeing facts in the world that don't fit our beliefs is something we humans do. It is one of our tendencies, as is our curiosity and urge to learn. When we allow the first tendency to predominate, it can lead to a sort of socially enforced ignorance and reluctance to see things differently. DeWall points out a couple of instances where this has happened in the world of primatology. In chapter four, The Wrong Metaphor, Exaggerating Primate Patriarchy, DeWall opens a long conversation about how misunderstanding and misuse of observations of animal behavior have created very wrong and unscientific understandings about humans. The chapter starts out with a description of a series of events at Monkey Hill in Regent's Park Zoo in London in the 1920s a hundred hamadryas baboons were released into a large rockwork enclosure. Now these baboons are organized in the wild into passionately harem-holding groups. That is, each male seeks to build a small polygynous family. In this example, most of the baboons were males, and they began fighting over control of the females. There weren't enough females for each male to have such a family, And this led to a bloodbath, with females being killed along with many males, two-thirds of the colony, in fact, even after more females were introduced after a while. After the fighting reduced the percentage of males, the fighting stopped. He goes on to say, Sally Zuckerman, the zoo's anatomist, single-handedly baboonized the gender debate. He proposed that males are naturally superior and violent, and that females have hardly any say at all. Females exist only for the males. In his 1932 book, The Social Lives of Monkeys and Apes, Zuckerman presented the events at Monkey Hill. In his 1932 book, The Social Lives of Monkeys and Apes, Zuckerman presented the events at Monkey Hill as emblematic of simian society and by extension, ours. Close quote. Zuckerman refused to accept later interpretations or summaries of field research that contradicted these beliefs or others that he held. This included him angrily disagreeing with Jane Goodall, which she reported on chimpanzees making tools for hunting termites. He demanded to know from the organizers of the conference. Quote, who invited this unknown ridiculous girl to a scientific meeting, close quote. Franz de Waal says on page 86 that this illustrates what he says are multiple intentions within our field between studies in captivity and the wild, between the male establishment and the first female primatologists, and between pessimistic and optimistic views of human nature. He goes on to talk about how he wasn't in alignment with the then current dominant view that humans are inherently violent and selfish and that we need civilization to prevent our worst instincts from prevailing. This point of view of us as violent showed up in the novel Lord of the Flies by Golding where a group of boys marooned on an island devolve into violent little groups attacking and dominating each other. While such violence can happen, especially when people are starving, most people try to work together under difficult circumstances. The view is belied by the true story, for example, of six boys between ages of 13 and 16 who were stranded on a deserted island for over a year. They managed to make fire, find food, and to create peaceful ways of handling conflicts that came up. In contrast to the Monkey Hill disaster, in which a group of baboons were placed in a situation unusual for them, the studies by Hans Kummer of Hamadryas baboons in both zoos and in their native habit in Ethiopia produced quite a different picture. Coomer's studies did produce a picture of a very male-dominated baboon society in which the male baboons establish small groups of what he termed one-male units, or OMUs. As DeWall says on page 91, they collect females which they defend against each other, but they have a range of subtle signals to forestall clashes. And in the zoo... Coomer tested the reactions of males. If a female was introduced into a room with two males who had no prior relationship with her, the males would fight over her. But if the males were in separate cages where they could see each other, and a female was introduced to one of the cages and the two bonded, the other male would respect their relationship even when they were let out into a larger cage together. This example, using one of our very distant DNA relatives, demonstrates that even in a group that has a high level of male dominance, there is also a determination to avoid conflict. We have tendencies that can be developed in many ways. In humans, where we have a higher level of communication and ability to decide how to express our inborn tendencies, we have even more choice than our distant DNA relatives among the monkeys have. Hamadrius baboons have sharp teeth and can inflict much damage with them. They have evolved to live together without mass murder in spite of their desire to control the females around them. Another way in which the failure to see facts in the world showed up is the way baboons were among the most studied monkeys because they are easy to follow compared to chimpanzees in a forest who are often up in the trees and moving around in ways it is sometimes hard to predict unless you have studied a specific group for a long time. This is one reason early studies of baboons' lives had such an impact on primatology at the time. Their life on the open savanna made them easy to follow and observe, And because we humans left the forest for the plains earlier in our evolution, they seemed a group to compare with us. As DeWall says on page 94 to 95, during the masculine heyday of primatology, the emphasis was entirely on the pugnacious males. Described in almost militaristic terms, they were thought to serve a governmental function. The male hierarchy was the backbone of society, that supposedly regulated every aspect of social life, including guaranteeing the lives and safety of mothers and offspring. He goes on to say, quote, the first women primatologists to arrive, however, didn't see things the same way. For them, female baboons were the core of society. Female kinship networks are stable over time, reinforced by a great deal of grooming and soft grunting at each other's babies. In contrast to earlier reports, even the supposedly militaristic role of baboon males in protecting the females and infants from danger turned out not to be true. According to primatologist Thelma Rowell, she observed Ishasa baboons in Uganda who reacted to danger by fleeing along with the females not providing a military-style phalanx of fighters. In other ways, our social presumptions in the 1960s to 1980s allowed us to, quote, see animals having rivals and enemies, but the idea that they could have friends seemed to be above their capabilities. Today we know, as DeWall says on page 97, for animals, quote, Having kin and friends is no luxury. It lowers the mortality risk of social animals as it does in us. This is important in thinking about what it means to be transgender. Much of the early work, even by people who were consciously sympathetic to us, was clouded by the old cultural assumptions of the society around them. We must be guided by scientific observation from which we draw testable hypotheses, not by looking for evidence to support what we think we already know. Sex, sexuality, and gender identity are beautiful and complex things in the real world. We know we humans are mostly born male or female in our natal sexes and still There are a small percentage born with what is variously called an intersex condition or a difference of sex development. We know that the majority of humans are born attracted sexually to members of the opposite sex, and still there is a minority of people who are gay, lesbian, or bisexual. We know that for most people, their gender identity and natal sex are in alignment, And yet there is a minority of people whose natal sex and gender identity do not match in some way. In addition, gender and sexuality are in part socially constructed as well. How we think about sexuality and gender, the ways in which a specific society normalizes them or does not, and the ways in which social and economic structures include differences in sexuality and gender identities matters. In fact, those structures can affect how a specific person develops, and how easily each person is able to thrive or not. I will conclude this episode by talking about a chimpanzee named Donna that Franz de Waal knew, observed and interacted with over many years. Donna was born female. When she was an infant, she would invite DeWall to play tickling games with her. In fact, she continued these games long after most chimps aren't ticklish anymore. Donna grew up to be physically much more like chimpanzee males than females. On page 52, he says, quote, Even her body hair reflected this. As in our species, the male chimpanzee is the hairier six. This ha- allows him to look larger than life when he goes pilo, from the term erection or bristling hair. Donna had unusually long hair and could go pilo all over her body like a male. She furthermore acted as if she were a part of the male world in some important ways. As soon as males started bluffing around, intimidating the group with her loud, hooting displays, Donna would join in and charge by their side. She'd sway her body or perform a bipedal swagger. On two legs, with her arms hanging loose and all her hair on end, she'd adopt a wide-legged gunslinger walk. Like the rain dance of wild chimpanzees, a sudden downpour could prompt her to walk around like this. You'd swear you were seeing a male, says Diwal. He goes on to talk about how Donna was one of the less aggressive individuals in the group, even though on occasion she would defend herself from attack. The males did not see her as a rival, but even dominant females would back away when she was doing her hooting as though she were one of the males. Mostly, the chimp colony just accepted her as one of the group, she was never seen to masturbate and didn't have sex with other chimps, male or female. She engaged in grooming more like the female chimps, and as DeWall says, quote, The best way to describe her is perhaps as a largely asexual, gender nonconforming individual. She can't speak, so it would be a mistake to describe her as transgender in the way we know among humans but it is sweet the way she was just accepted by the other chimps. How wonderful it would be if gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender or gender nonconforming humans could be as well accepted everywhere in America. While we have a lot to learn scientifically about transgender people, We are a reality that can only be denied with harmful consequences in my experiences. In upcoming episodes, I will talk more about gender and sexuality from things I've read and relate them to my own experiences. Thank you for listening. If you would like to be notified of future episodes, please sign up on the contacts page of sacredgyre.com.